Welcome to the Samuel Andreev podcast. To support this podcast, please visit the donation page of Samuel's website or his Patreon page. There are links in the description. Samuel's Twitter is at Samuel Andreev. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Samuel Andreev podcast. This week, I'm presenting a podcast exclusive, a conversation with Dan Albertson. Dan Albertson is a figure who is probably familiar to a lot of composers, but for those who don't know who he is, he's a kind of walking encyclopedia of contemporary music. He's an absolutely remarkable person who seems to have probably the best knowledge of anybody I've ever met of all the hundreds, even thousands of composers that are active currently, and he follows the activities of many, many artists very closely. He's a writer, he's a critic, he does all sorts of things that uh, that certainly enrich the discourse surrounding contemporary music, and he is just a, a, a very interesting person to talk to, partly because he's not a composer, this is not somebody who has a vested interest in particular in the world of contemporary music, and so he has opinions that are completely independent and, I'd say, always very interesting and stimulating. So this is a discussion with Dan Albertson. If you want to see more of his work or know more about what he does, you'll find some links in the description of the podcast. I'm going to assume that if there are any composers listening to this, they probably already know who you are. But um, nevertheless, we should probably just sort of give people an idea of, of who you are and, and what you do. So maybe you could start things off. Like, what is, uh, what is your relationship to music exactly? This question is very complicated because I don't know the answer myself. <laughs> Needless to say, since I was very young, I have been very interested in new music. And I've been very fortunate to spend my life surrounded by composers since I was a teenager. So I am not a academic in the sense of being trained as a musicologist, but nonetheless, I have over the years worked a lot with Contemporary Music Review, which is a very big publication in the UK. And with that publication, I have edited multiple volumes of journals about composers who are generally not very well published in the English language. And it started with the Living Composers Project, which I still work on, the goal of which is to make information about composers available in one place. Of course, now the internet is so stratified, but I do still believe in the value of having things in a central location. And I, I do a lot of translating of program notes. I write my own program notes, and I do lots of things. <laughs> well, I think I think you're somewhat of a unique figure and a, a bit of a rare bird, actually, in the in the current musical landscape. And that's part of the reason why I wanted to talk to you. Actually, is that you're you're a figure who has, I think, like an amazingly encyclopedic uh, knowledge, a kind of uh, bird's eye view of the contemporary music scene. Uh, and that's partly by virtue of the fact that you you seem to have like very very Catholic tastes, or at least you'll you're willing to listen to anything once and and give the composer the benefit of the doubt, and then and then you'll see, without any ideological filtering, that would cause you to have a, a sort of a preordained judgment on on this or that work, and that's actually a, an amazingly rare thing in in the the world of contemporary music. But um, so you're not you're not a composer but you are very involved in this world, but in a way where you don't really have a vested interest in promoting this or that viewpoint. 
And I think that makes that puts you in a very interesting position. There's there are a few people like that. I think of Paul Griffiths, for example, who 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 fills that role to some extent. But there there aren't that many people like that. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that because I'm I'm curious as to how you go from sort of being passionate about music to uh, to wanting to investigate it in in that much depth, and just how you came to start writing. Well, I think it all starts with curiosity. I, I've always been a very curious person. When when I first heard a piece of new music, it was a piece by Berio. I don't know if it was the Sinfonia or maybe a different piece by him, but in any case, I was flabbergasted at the idea that a composer could be alive in the first place <laughs> because I, I assumed that they were all dead. And that's that's where it started. And ever since then, I've been curious about the big figures, but also the the arcana the the esoteric figures both in history and now i started writing about it when i was in high school and people did not know how young i was i submitted some things and they were published and when i did my my first contemporary music review as an editor i believe i was 19 years old maybe 20 but of course they never would have accepted me if they had known how completely inexperienced I was. So what, what were the qualities that, uh, that you think sort of allowed you to be, to be published so early? Because it, it, that's a very unusual thing to have publications already when you're, when you're 19, when you're in high school still. I agree with you, Sam. I, I don't know what it was. It, looking back at those writings now, I, I tend to think that they're not very good. <laughs> but but, but that's, that's always an older person looking back at the work of one's young self. Maybe it's simply because I was interested in composers who were not covered very broadly at that time. I'm thinking especially of Lachenmann. And Lachenmann, of course, is a canonic figure now. But when I did that project 15, 16 years ago, he was almost completely undocumented in English. So there was a, a gap that was needing to be plugged in some way. And... I, I stepped into that breach. So tell me a little bit about the, the website, Composer 21, which you, which you mentioned earlier. So what exactly is the project of that website? How does it work? And, and how did you get started on that? Okay, that's, that's also an extension of my curiosity. It started with, with just a few composers. And it it really starts in canada i have to say you you are a canadian and i grew up on the other side of the border but not far and certainly close enough to listen to cbc and that's what i did i listened to a lot of cbc when i was a child so there was a program called two new hours so you're, you're from just just to be precise you're from michigan originally is that right i, I am from michigan yes. yes and and we got the the relay from windsor where, where I grew up. So one Sunday night, I happened upon this program called Two New Hours. And ever since then, I was fascinated by this idea of new music. And it was on every week. So I, I listened to it and I thought, okay, why not put together some sort of website, some sort of database? I had no idea what I was doing. And it grew and grew and grew and now my my goal is especially to document those that are not documented it, it's hard work because a lot of the composers are 
off the grid in some way, or they don't speak English or German or French or some language that we have in common. But I, I do still try to track down the untrackable. Would you say that um, the, in, in its sort of current state, the, the world of contemporary music, to some extent, and this is probably true of many endeavors, uh, many sort of uh, areas of human endeavor, but to, to a large extent, it's, it's a kind of a winner-take-all system where you do have a small number of stars uh, who are extremely visible, uh, who get a lot of press coverage and so on, and, 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 uh, and whose work is, uh, is a lot of, quite a lot of attention. And then you also have a very, very large number of people who get almost none, no attention. And there's, there seems to be little in the way of middle ground between those, those two situations. I think it's partly because of a few factors. Obviously, funding is an issue, and big names tend to be a, a safe bet. But also there's the issue of publishers. And you have probably noticed as much as I have that once you have a big publisher, the, the quality of your output is not as important as the quantity of it. And once you have made these connections, it's, it's very easy to coast. And that's, that's fine if you are a composer and you are making a, a decent income. I, I don't have any objection to that. But I think in artistic terms, it's, it's a lot less satisfactory. Well, okay, that's an interesting point. So let, let's try to put that into some perspective. So if we were to compare the situation now that you just described uh, with the situation, let's say, in the 1920s, uh, which obviously is an extremely different historical period, but do you do you feel that the, the 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 relationship between publisher and composer between sort of the well I don't know if you could really say that there was a cultural industry as such in the 1920s, but would you say that those relationships were similar then? Are they different now? How would you compare them? Everything changed after World War II, and that's that's undeniable. If if you think about the 20s or the 30s, and you think about the the publishers like Kalmus or Universal Edition, which had, in hindsight, such amazing composers, people like Webern, Bartok, Schoenberg, Berg. Webern was a, a copy editor for Universal Edition for many years. And there were far fewer composers overall than there are now, and most of them were not trained in the same way. The, the system shifted after World War II, away from a sort of master and apprentice model, which is what had served composers for two, three centuries, I suppose, maybe even more, to this idea that you, you suddenly need to be a degreed person. You, you need to be a professional, just like a doctor or a lawyer. Right, so there's been a sort of encroaching academicization of the field of composition, which yes. is... is Maybe not the case, the, you know, the, the case to the same extent everywhere, but it's, it's certainly something that I, I think would be hard to deny. And that has certain advantages. It, it has advantages in the sense that it can provide a sort of a degree of stability in the lives and, and the careers of composers, which simply was not the case uh, earlier. I mean, there were, there were extremely few opportunities to do that. We know that even very you know, uh, successful composers like Bartok died in poverty for example, not to mention the, the tragic figures of, of Webern or Varese, uh, to a very large extent, who had absolutely miserable lives. Uh, so the, the university system, I suppose, provides a, a measure of protection and stability, 
but it also has its disadvantages. And one of the obvious disadvantages is that it's it's a kind of an, envir- an artificial environment. So the composers are, are cut off from the larger world of music to some extent. And, uh, and it also has the interesting effect of sort of multiplying the number of composers ad infinitum, uh, almost uh, to a, uh, an exponential degree, because the composers that uh, come out of the university programs then aspire to become teachers themselves, and then they have whatever, 600 students over the course of their career, and so on and so forth. So there's this kind of indefinite multiplication of the number of composers uh, coming out of that sort of system. So I suppose that would make the task of somebody who would aspire to survey the overall world of contemporary music a little bit harder, just because there are so many people to keep up with now. Absolutely. I can give you a statistic, which is that the, the Living Composers Project currently lists almost 4,600 composers, and I could very easily double that number, I'm sure, if, if I was really, really diligent. <laughs> it, it would not take that much effort to reach 8,000, 9,000, 10,000 composers. And, and we're talking about composers who mostly operate in serious music as opposed to commercial music. I, I don't want to just start a discussion about what, what the nomenclature is, but I think you know what I mean. Generally working in the field of notated music or art music or what, what, what do people call it now? They don't call it serious music, do they? No, that's not, a, it's not a term you hear very often. I think partly because the implication is that other types of music are not serious, and that's, that's a claim that few people would be willing to make. You do hear the terms new music, you do hear contemporary composition, you hear art music to some extent, um, but, uh, but none of these terms are, are particularly satisfactory in and of themselves. But there is there is a distinction. There is definitely a distinction to be to be made between music that is explicitly commercial in its nature, and music that uh, that has a, a single-minded pursuit of art. And sometimes those two things overlap, and sometimes they overlap quite spectacularly. But often they don't. Um, and there's also a distinction I would say to be made between uh, commercial music per se and popular music, and that's also not the same thing. Nor has it been the same thing for a while, because if you think back to Haydn, for instance, or Schubert, Schubert wrote many dances, Mozart wrote many dances. I'm not sure that there was as much of a distinction between highbrow and lowbrow. Right. Well, that's that's a distinction that maybe we could we could get into a little bit, because it it seems to me that starting in the late the late 1800s, around the time of Wagner particularly, uh, you start to get this increasing uh, separation between what you might call the the worlds of popular culture, and I mean popular in the sense of rooted in some kind of a vernacular, not not in the in the the, the sort of commonly understood sense of commercial culture, which is a, a, again a different matter. But so you have this distinction between uh, sort of vernacular popular art on the one hand and this sort of spiritually elevated art that wants nothing to do with the popular and that actually shuns it. And that is an interesting development in the sense that it absolutely was not the case in music history prior to that moment, or at least certainly not to that same extent. So you had these uh, composers who, uh, like Webern's a good example, and I I love Webern, but he he thought that uh, popular inspired music was sort of 
garbage to a large extent. He was very, very contemptuous of it. Uh, you see much more ambivalence with Schoenberg, actually, who, uh, who was willing to incorporate aspects of the popular in pieces like the Serenade. Um, but, uh, I mean, you, you, you can't possibly imagine Webern writing a jazz-inspired piece, for example. <laughs> no, but it's, isn't it funny that Webern loved Heinrich Isaac so much? Because Heinrich Isaac was not at all afraid to use popular melodies in his so-called lofty choral music, was he? Right, right, absolutely. Uh, but nevertheless, there is this kind of uh, reflexive dislike of, of the popular in favor of this sort of very uh, arcane and, and elevated and highly subjective form of art. And I think that as the 20th century wears on, this polarization between the two worlds uh, actually gets more and more extreme. Uh, and then you end up with a situation that we have currently where you have this contemporary music world, which to some extent I think you could say is a kind of a ghetto, uh, which is really cut off from other sort of sorts of music to a large extent. And you have a lot of composers who, uh, who are not willing to acknowledge or to uh, incorporate, let's say, any aspect of anything vernacular or popular in their music whatsoever, uh, and vice versa. So the, the sort of uh, crossovers that you had between the popular and the avant-garde in the 1960s with things like Revolution 9 on the, on the White Album, for example, it would be very, very difficult to imagine Bruno Mars, for example, going out on a limb <laughs> and doing something <laughs> like that. No, I, I suppose that it would be Radiohead. But the, the guitarist of Radiohead, Johnny Greenwood, has aspirations as a serious composer. And I don't know if you've heard any of this music, but to me it sounds like watered-down Penderecki. No, I'm not, I'm not familiar with that music, no. But uh, one thing I, I, I'm curious about, so we, we talked about how there's this huge multiplication in the number of composers. A lot of them are coming out of the university system. How do you see, as somebody who is incredibly knowledgeable about what people are doing, who, who's listened to untold thousands of pieces, uh, is it possible to sort of engage in a, a kind of a general diagnostic of what's happening today? Is, is like, does this huge world of, uh, of, of composers, thousands and thousands of composers, have any overall characteristics or is it really just a complete free-for-all? I think it's something in between. It's, it's definitely not a free-for-all. If, if you were to do it geographically or even chronologically, looking at composers from a certain generation, there, there are always things that link them. But we do live in, a, in an age now where there's a lot of multicultural things going on. I, I don't want to say that we are free of dogma, because I think many of the people who claim to be anti-dogma are even more dogmatic than people were in the 50s and 60s. But I would say that there is certainly an openness that can be good or bad. This, this Catholic taste can be liberating, but it can also be overwhelming because now you have so much weight on your shoulders, not just from history, but from everything that your colleagues and contemporaries are doing. And now, if there's a premiere in Budapest or in Los Angeles or wherever, you can hear it almost immediately, which mm -hmm. was not the case even 10 years ago. So you have to magnify the pressure and magnify it tenfold or hundredfold. 
Right. So, so where does that leave audiences actually? Because if you, if you have a situation where uh, composers today can travel freely and, and do travel freely, they can study in foreign countries, they can study in multiple foreign countries, they can do, go into a degree somewhere else and then return home or not return home. Uh, they can sort of soak in influences from the entire, not only the entire world, but also from the entire history of music because everything is, is so available now. Uh, so that sort of creates an interesting situation where, like, what, what, how, how can any composer today say that they are embedded in a particular culture when, in fact, we're sort of, we're sort of uh, navigating quite fluidly through a, a multitude of different cultures simultaneously? Um, that, that would seem to create some problems with, with regards to style, for example, like, like actually creating a style. Inevitably, yes. But some people would say that that's a deliberate choice also. That is, it's a reflection of the chaotic times in which we live not to have a style. Or not to give my piece a structure means that we live in a, a world that has no structure. These sorts of things are, are quite reductive to my way of thinking, but there are people who would advocate for it. Yeah. So, okay. But, but it also leaves the question that in the past, like if, if you were to go in here a premiere of a new piece, let's say in 1960 or even 1970, uh, you would hear, sort of hear it against the backdrop of the, the, the culture within which you were living. So for example, if you were um, an audience member, I don't know, in, in Paris in 1960, and you went to hear a concert of the Domaine Musicale, then you would hear that against the backdrop of everything else that was happening in Paris. And you would see it as, okay, it's this renegade phenomenon and they're, they're doing all of these things that, that, uh, that are relatively new in, in French musical life and so on. So there would be something to push against because there was an established order, so to speak. Um, but now that's, that's simply, it's just not the case. So where does that, where does that leave us exactly? It, it leaves us in this, this state where there's no prevailing trend. There are a few trends that exist concurrently. Obviously, minimalism and post-minimalism are, are still a, a big draw in certain markets, less so in other markets. But there, there are some markets that appreciate a, a more neo-romantic or neo-impressionist sort of thing. And there are, there are niches for everything. It, it depends on, on which festival and which artistic director and which ensemble. These things are quite... Uh, niche-oriented, I would say, quite localized. So what would, what would be your point of view on the question of the composer who says, you know, the, the festivals, the, uh, the ensembles, the orchestras, and so on, uh, represent a certain form of a market, and you can either willingly go with that market and, and produce products that more or less uh, uh, cohere with what, with what those institutions are doing, or you could say, well, I'm, I'm going to completely ignore uh, the sort of market pressures and produce my own work with the risk that you'll be in a complete vacuum. Yes, but I'm afraid that most composers would not have the luxury to say no. And if you, if you accept a commission from a certain group or a certain director, a certain festival, whatever, and, and you try to swim against the aesthetic currents, you will probably not be invited back. So you, you do so at your own peril. And most composers would, would much rather toe the line, I think. So is there any genuine risk-taking then in contemporary music in that sense? 
what, what, would it, what would it be? What would that be? Because you, you talked about Lachenmann at the outset, and it would be yeah. hard to argue that Lachenmann uh, was averse to risk when he was starting his career, because although he's a, you know, obviously a venerated figure now, he certainly wasn't in the 1960s. And if anything, there was an enormous amount of resistance to what he was trying to do. So you can speak of somebody who is actually taking real risks. But what about today? I, I don't honestly hear this, this sense of risk-taking in most of the music that is broadcast and circulated and commissioned. It's, it's possible to find it if you really go seek it out. Uh, I know some, some composers in South America, for instance, who are doing things that are completely beyond the scope of what contemporary music is seen as in the West. They are building their own instruments. They, they have compiled an orchestra based on indigenous instruments, and they have their own notation for these instruments. The sound is like nothing else. But, but who knows about these composers and these ensembles? They, they have no international circulation. I'd be curious to have but some names. But, but, but that's risk-taking for you, yes. Yeah. They're, they're mostly from, from Argentina. But uh -huh. the, the figurehead, in fact, is a Bolivian named Sergio Prudentio. And she has disciples and collaborators in Argentina. And uh, they also like electronic things that mix with these indigenous instruments. So it's a sort of third world revolution. <laughs> That's very interesting. Well, we'll have to we'll have to keep an eye on that because one of the things that that implies is that genuine risk taking to some extent would be contingent on the a composer's an artist's willingness to produce work outside of the the current new music infrastructure because it it seems like once you voluntarily participate in that infrastructure which which is understandable, obviously, because you don't want to have to put together your own ensemble. You don't want to have to find your own, uh, uh, you know, start your own publishing company and start your own, uh, start your own sort of a system of diffusion of, of music. Like you don't want to have to do everything from scratch. But at the same time, if you if you do participate in that system, then there's there's an obvious trade off in in terms of what's going to be expected of you and, and how you're going to respond to that. But maybe the the, the risk taking approach would be to sort of operate outside of that and, 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 and to actually uh, create not only the work, but also the conditions for the work to be heard. Which, which is more difficult to do. If, if you consider that an ensemble is usually 10 or 15 players, if, if you write a piece for sinfonietta, however you define a sinfonietta, you know more or less what you will get. You, you do not expect to go to a concert and hear six flutes and six tubas, right? But, but what if somebody does want to write a piece for six flutes and six tubas? How would this person go about doing it? Who would commission the piece? Who would finance the piece? How would you even get six tubas on a stage? It's, it's not a practical thing, and composers have to be practical. Sadly, they, do have, would, they do have to be practical. There, there's the interesting counterexample of Boulez. The, the, the interesting thing about Boulez's work is that a, a great deal of it is sort of bizarrely impractical in the sense that he was forever writing for these completely insane ensembles that don't exist anywhere else. So an obvious example would be a piece, a piece like uh, Sur Incise, which is written for three pianos, three harps, and three percussionists. And that's just obviously not a combination that that happens every day. So you have to, 
you would have to have very special conditions in place to put on a piece like that, which also requires an enormous amount of rehearsal time. But there's, there's also the example of éclat multiple, which requires uh, 10 violas and no other strings. You know, so it's, yes. <laughs> so it's like and you can't... And a cimbalom. And a cimbalom and, and basset horn. It's a very, very strange piece. And so you can't hire a string orchestra and just, and just have the violas. So how do you put on a piece like that? But wouldn't you say that Boulez had a certain clout that lesser figures would not have? And, and a, a current example is George Benjamin because Benjamin often likes to incorporate unusual instruments in his pieces, and he can get away with it because he's George Benjamin. But if you are not George Benjamin or Pierre Boulez, and you decide to put in three contrabass clarinets or a bass trumpet or whatever, will anybody even pay attention to you? Yeah, well, and in Boulez's case, I mean, some of the more extreme demands of his, of his projects were possible because he was a, he was a music director. He was a, a very highly respected conductor. He was in charge of Yerkam. He was the director. Uh, and he also was, uh, had, had a role at the uh, Intercontemporain. So he had both the, the political contacts and the musical contacts and the, and the sort of role of leader in the musical world that allowed him to do things like that. But if you're sort of the average composer who, is you know, who needs to have the assistance of, of outside ensembles and... Uh, that it's very, very difficult to put together conditions like that. And you're going to be forced to compromise perhaps more than you might like to. Yeah, I, I don't want to turn the conversation back to you, but I, I would just point out to the listeners that the host of this program has written several pieces himself that have rather unusual instrumentations. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Um, I'm a little bit better at finding practical solutions now than I was when I started doing that about uh, about seven, 17, 18 years ago. But, and, and that has its drawbacks, I have to say. And I w incidentally, I wouldn't recommend that a composition student do the same thing that I did because a lot of the early pieces that I wrote had to wait seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years to be performed. And that's not an ideal situation either because it's always better when composers can, uh, can present their work publicly relatively soon after it's written, I think. Uh, and in, in the case of my own output, there were, there were often very extended lags between the composition of a piece and its, and its public presentation. But th th that's just one of the risks that, uh, that are attendant upon writing pieces that don't really fit a mold. And, and that, that's a, a risk that composers need to be willing to accept. But how many of them have the ability to go a year or two years or three years without a paid commission. It's, it's a serious life and death sort of issue for most people. Yes, well, of course, because there are, there are existential questions relating to this. Um, I mean, in, in my case, the most extreme of those pieces were written when I was a student. So it was, it was a slightly different situation because I was not yet completely in active life, so to speak. And uh, things certainly did look different after I, after I finished my studies. But, um, but uh, let, let's get back to this question, though, of, of, uh, of composers sort of creating the conditions for their, for their own work. Because, you know, there are, there are so many cases of, of great figures in the, in the 20th century who, who did this. And, in fact, I think I, I would be hard-pressed to think of many really great and influential figures who didn't do some variation on that. So we have the example of Stockhausen. Uh, create, setting up his own, his own publishing company to put out his music, for example. 
or uh, Steve Reich and Philip Glass were both involved in, in, you know, in putting together their own ensembles and touring with them and, uh, and just completely bypassing the institutions altogether. Uh, Boulez obviously did that as well. So is, is that perhaps uh, still a, a model going forward or is there just so much pressure on composers now to have successes right away that it's, it's harder to have these sort of long-term projects? Oh, I, de I definitely think that there's too much pressure on, on young composers to achieve all these, these steps on the, on the, the via crucis, this, yeah, this, this way of the cross. You, you must go to IRCOM or you, you must get your DMA by, by such and such a date and you must attend this summer course and you must have a New York Times blurb in your bio. All of these signs of conformity but but there are other ways of doing it, and not everybody is is going to write a, a, a great piece by the time you're thirty, or even forty. It, it it could take some time, and artists develop at their own rate. Historically, a great example is Janáček, of course. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If if you if you were in Borno or wherever he was when he was 45 years old, you would think that he's a, a perfectly decent provincial composer. He's, he's not the Janáček of the Glagolitic Mass or from the House of the Dead or the, the String Quartets, right? And he was, he was not a successful composer until right at the end of his life. He's a yep. good example. Yes, there's, there's many examples. Uh, Varese is another one. Of course, all of his early works are lost. But from contemporary reports, we understand that they were sort of derivative, sort of vaguely post-Straussian, uh, uh, late Romantic sort of creations, but without any particular distinction. So he had, in a, in a certain sense, the advantage uh, of all of those works being destroyed uh, and, uh, and sort of leaving no traces, except for these perfect works, which suddenly started emerging in the, in the 1920s. So he has this, this catalog, which consists only of, uh, of extremely striking pieces in which he, there's this immediate uh, personality, artistic personality that's, that's already there. We don't see any yeah. of the sort of the, the transformations leading up to that point. Yeah, there's, there's no juvenilia. But, but then there's also the example of Mendelssohn, of course, which is the opposite. I think most people agree that Mendelssohn's best music is, is from his very earliest period. Yes, yeah, and and um, there there well there are, there are other examples of that from the from the history of of, of music as well. But um, it, although it's something that I, I don't think you see too often these days, just because the the uh, it, it takes so long to get attention as a composer, generally speaking. You know, it, it, it's these the sorts of let's say G George Benjamin type figures who have these very brilliant, very spectacular careers at the outset and get a lot of attention very quickly. Um, it's a very, very rare phenomenon, generally speaking. And it's also very difficult to sustain it the way that he has, because there are many examples of composers who are nourished by whatever country they come from, and they get a lot of attention and a lot of funding, and they burn out. It's very difficult to maintain a momentum if you have all this pressure on you while you are 20 years old or 25 years old and not ready to, to handle it. Yeah, in many respects, I think the, the examples of uh, uh, Kurtag, for example, who was a not particularly well-known or celebrated professor of chamber music in Budapest 
for decades uh, without really any any kind of a, an international career to speak of as a composer whatsoever. And he he sort of became a, a public figure quite late in his career, uh, thanks to the uh, Lettre du Feu Demoiselle Hervé Troussova, which was championed by Boulez. But uh, but that that again it arrived very late in his career. So you had somebody who was able to sort of develop and nourish this very unusual inner world over a lengthy period of time without really having a great deal of professional pressure to conform or to uh, to sort of fit into any particular mold. And then when he does emerge, he's already got this very rich world already defined. And there's something to be said for that, I would say, even though it can be a, a very hard path to follow. Yes, I, I agree with you, Sam, but I, I would also say that the conditions in which Cortag operated played a role and those conditions are no longer possible because of course he was very isolated in Hungary. Hungary was mostly cut off from outside developments. That sort of thing is impossible now. I don't think that you could, even if you wanted to, be so ignorant of what is going on in mainstream Europe or in mainstream US contemporary music. So he was a product of a time and a place which some people would say is is good it's it's good that we don't have this sort of isolation anymore but at the same time we, we don't have another Cortag or a milan kundera or solzhenitsyn or, or whoever you may want to cite as an example of somebody behind the iron curtain well as somebody who who travels quite frequently and who you know attends concerts in many many different countries would you say that there is still a, a distinction to be made between say the musical scene in in berlin or in paris or new york or or in asia or wherever it may be um or are we sort of in the process of witnessing a kind of general homogenization of the contemporary music world where you can go to festivals in different countries and hear approximately the same types of work, just because everybody's traveling, they're all going to the same festivals, and uh, and they're all listening to the same things with the with an equivalent ease, thanks to the internet. I would say it's becoming harder and harder to find unique things, and that's a byproduct of the 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 cheap international travel that we have now. It's it's so easy to go from A to B. And so many students from whatever country study in Germany or study in the UK or study in the US. In, in China, which is where I'm based at the moment, in Shanghai, Tristan Murray is, is there two or three times a year, I think. There's, there's a lot of spectral influence that has been creeping into Asian music. And in Japan, there were several students who studied with Krise in the 90s, and they have had their own disciples now. So these things often, what's popular in, in one continent in one decade will resurface somewhere else a decade or two later. But it's, it's always filtered through a local prism. Right. So, so there is some degree of, of cohesion or at least of, uh, of, of local identity in these different places. Ideally, yes. Uh, I would say that the, the issue is not so much the originality of the composer. It's, it's much more about having, uh, having your own culture and learning an outside culture and creating something that's in between these two things. It's very easy to imitate, but 
it's also very easy to be original. But being original just for the sake of being original doesn't accomplish anything. So I think you need to, to have a certain degree of originality, but also an awareness that there are other paths. Right. For, for which you need to have a certain attribute of, of openness and curiosity. Naturally. So one thing that I'm curious about again, you so you you have a, quite a, a breathtaking uh, knowledge of 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 composers and of different things that are happening. Um, what what are some of the things that are the most sort of positive and and exciting developments that you're seeing at the moment in terms of the sorts of works that are that are being done? Um, you know, particularly striking premieres that you've heard recently, uh, careers that are particularly noteworthy or unusual that you think are worth following. Oh, well, one thing that, that I find encouraging is that there is still a lot of music being written that is very thoughtful. It's not necessarily the most groundbreaking music. It's not the most inventive music. Maybe it's even tonal sometimes. <laughs> I think that we have moved beyond the tonal or atonal discussion. But when I listen to a piece of music, I want it to move me intellectually as well as physically. And there is a lot of music, if you know where to look for it, that, that can satisfy both the heart and the mind. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure that the, the French have necessarily moved beyond the tonal, atonal <laughs> a, a dichotomy, because it's, it's still a, actually a comment that you hear quite often, uh, which is that, oh, so-and-so is not worth paying attention to because they're neo-this or neo-that or because it's, it's got elements of tonality in it, uh, which is kind of a surprising thing. And I don't know if that's only located in France, but there, there is, despite this very um, cosmopolitan and, uh, and international new music scene, there are nevertheless still some taboos. Like there are certain things that if, if you want to be part of that world, it, it would be difficult to get away with, I would think, uh, from, from an aesthetic point of view. For sure. I, I think that if, if you go to Dono Eschingen, you, you would not hear a premiere by, let's say, Nicolas Bacri, right? Right. That's a fair assumption. <laughs> and, 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 and if you go to Manifest, uh, I, don't, I don't think that there would be a new piece by David Lang. So <laughs> there, are, there are, as you say, certain battleground states. And maybe the tonal, atonal issue isn't dead, but for me it is. I'm I'm more concerned about the quality of the work. Yeah, yeah. So okay. So put yourself in the position of, let's say, uh, a listener who is sort of intrigued by contemporary music and is willing to step outside of their uh, their zone of comfort. Let's say, and this this could be anything. It could be somebody who is you know more accustomed to Brahms and Beethoven. It could be someone who only listens to pop music and so on. And they, they arrive in this world of contemporary music for the first time, knowing very little about it, having no sense of orientation, having no criteria really to judge whether a piece is good or not, and, and really not being sure whether they should like something or not even. And this is, incidentally, uh, when, I, when I speak to people who are sort of outside of the world of contemporary music and are sort of encountering it for the first time, there's very often this kind of feeling of anxiety. It's like, this is this huge thing. There's all these hundreds of names of composers I've never heard of before. I feel outside of it. I feel left out. I have no ability to judge what I'm hearing. And I think that more than anything, uh, the biggest challenge that, that such people face is just the inability to 
uh, appreciate and 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 judge what it is they are in fact hearing. What would you say to a person like that? I agree. It's 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 a big challenge. People often ask me, so what do I listen for, or what do I listen to? Do I need to understand what the composer is doing? My response is always the same: don't read the program note. Just just listen to the piece and listen to it as you would listen to anything else or if you go if you go to the movies obviously it's a new movie right maybe you would like it maybe you would not but it's it's not a huge investment a, a film if you really hate it it's two hours of your life if, it, if it's a new piece of music okay maybe it's five or ten minutes they could be pleasant they could be unpleasant but take take a chance there, there's there, there are far worse things to worry about in life. It's very but true. Approach it, approach it with an open mind, two open ears, an open heart. There's, there's nothing that can't be, there's no beast that can't be tamed. It's amazing how many problems just sort of vanish when you approach things that way. It, it, it's true. Um, I think part of it is just that there was a, a great deal of polemicization in the contemporary music world. There was a lot of jargon. There's a lot of... Uh, uh, highly technical slash philosophical slash speculative writing going on, theoretical writing. And for whatever reason, I, I don't think a lot of this writing was necessarily intended for a broad audience, but it seems to have sort of colored the image of contemporary music as being this sort of world of very arcane and specialized uh, work that only a few initiates can, can appreciate. Yes, poor Milton Babbitt, right? <laughs> Maybe it all goes back to Milton Babbitt. Who cares if you listen? But but the the sixties are dead and gone, and I, I don't see a reason to continue fighting these battles. Either it's good music or it's not good music. It's it's really simple. And what criteria people apply will depend on on their own tastes. There there could be a piece that I find completely abominable, but I would at least say okay, I, I know what your tastes are. Maybe you would like this sort of piece. So there are so many different kinds of new music. I, I don't want people to think that it's all grading at the ears. If you want that, you can certainly get it. But if you want your ears to be massaged very gently, you can get that too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's true. I remember actually uh, a review that I read on La Folia. I can't remember if it's you who wrote it, actually, it, although it probably was, uh, of a CD. And I, won't, I won't say who the composer was, but the comment was, it's, it's amazing how unrelentingly alienating this music is. And maybe, you, maybe, maybe you remember who this refers to, actually. Um, I, it, it was, I, I don't, in fact, but, but maybe you could tell me after we stop recording. <laughs> well, it, it, well, it was actually a positive review. But it was just a it was just a comment on the fact that uh, there is a sort of branch of contemporary music that is involved in things that are you might say spectacularly difficult to listen to on a on a on a certain level, like just just physically in terms of the demands it makes uh, and the nature of the sounds themselves, also. And there are there are composers who uh, who sort of are spending their careers investigating those sorts of directions, but. As you say, uh, there's there's something for everybody. There are there are pieces like that that uh, that are going to appeal to a particular type of listener, but uh, but there's also things that are much more approachable, and that's not even to say that there's a there's a value judgment associated with those positions either. 
Yes, yes, because sometimes I'm in the mood to listen to Phil Neblock too. And if people don't know who Phil Neblock is, he's a composer who, he writes drones, and that's all that they are. They, they are drones of instruments stacked on top of each other. The music almost never changes. If, if you want something very visceral and loud for 30 or 40 minutes, just put on Phil Neblock. I'm not saying I'm in the mood for that very often, but there will be a time when I say, okay, why not put on some Phil Niblock today? Well, one of the more memorable experiences I've had was listening to a Phil Niblock piece played in the Église Saint-Méry in Paris in circa 2010. I never forgot that concert. Um, and that's not to say that it was necessarily a great piece or that, or, or that it wasn't a great piece either, but it's just it was so singular an experience to have this overwhelming volume of sound coming at you and spatialized within this incredible uh, acoustic environment. You, you don't forget an experience like that. Even, even 10 years later, I still remember it quite vividly. Yeah, because it must be very physical. It is very physical. And it's, it's a, but it's a strange sort of physicality because you're just sitting there in a chair passively, more or less passively anyway. Uh, but something is happening in the room that's invisible and that is profoundly affecting you. So it's a, it's a very interesting phenomenon. And at the other end of the spectrum, I suppose, would be a, a, a late piece by Martin Feldman, one of those three or four or five hour pieces, which would also be a sort of transcendental experience. I, I'm loath to use that term transcendental. It's, it's overused. But uh, I do think listening to a piece like for Philip Guston would probably be a slightly transcendental experience if you can sit through it. Well, it seems to me that one of the criteria for a successful piece, or at least at least a piece that sort of jumps out of the the sort of collective mass of of pieces that are being produced all the time, if it, if it has the quality of mem memorableness, in other words, if you were to hear a piece once and then look back on it ten, fifteen, twenty years later and still be able to remember the experience of sitting there and listening to it, then that's really something. And I think that's actually quite a rare thing. But there are pieces that have that quality, uh, pieces that have either something so striking about them or a, a gesture that is so uh, simple and striking and unique that you can't forget it. And you compare that to a, a sort of a more average piece where you, know, you, you hear it and maybe it's, it's all right and you applaud politely and so on. But if you, were to, if you were asked to recall it five years later, you might have completely forgotten that you ever heard it in the first place. And if you did remember anything about it, you'd be very hard pressed to recall any specific details about the piece. For sure. And it's, it's also worth bearing in mind that history has done a lot of sifting for us. So that if you see Beethoven or Brahms on a program, you can more or less assume it will be one of the good bits. It, it will probably not be the King Stephen Overture or Consecration of the House Overture or one of these lesser Beethoven pieces. And in the case of Brahms, I mean, there's a lot of good Brahms that we never hear, but there's, there's also some things that we don't need to hear. Whereas if you, if you are dealing with contemporary music, you don't know whether the composer is going to give us Beethoven's Fifth Symphony or Beethoven uh, Christ on the Mount of Olives. I, I mean, you, you don't really know what you're going to get, but, but that's part of the excitement of it. Every, every premiere has, if not a boundless potential, then at least a great potential. Absolutely. So I'd like to bring the conversation back a little bit more towards your work. So uh, 
what are you working on presently and how can we find it? How can we find examples of your writing? So for the people listening out here who might not already be familiar with, with your criticism or with the, the work you've done, uh, what, what do they do about, uh, about finding it? I do not have a journal with Contemporary Music Review at the moment, but I, I always recommend Contemporary Music Review. There are many good things to read there. I sometimes write slightly polemical things for La Folia. There was one about American music that got me in some trouble recently, but uh, a lot of my writing recently has been for German publications, so unless people read German, I'm afraid that it's, it's not going to work. I've written for Musiktexte recently, and I've, I've been doing encyclopedic things for Komponisten der Gegenwart. Okay. Well, what do you think the role of the contemporary music critic should be exactly? Because the, the, the sort of role of the, of, the, of the newspaper critic has disappeared, essentially. There's only a handful of papers that still have them uh, in, in North America. And there's a few of them in, in Europe, but it's, it's becoming increasingly rare. Um, so what, what sort of role should the music critic have? Is, is it about, you know, uh, explaining art to the public? Is it about drawing attention to things? How, or is it something else entirely? How, how would you characterize it? Well, I can't say that, that music criticism is, is an essential thing. What, what I try to do is something a bit beyond music criticism. It's putting music of our time in a context, which is to say that all music comes from somewhere. It's not created in a vacuum. So I think that the role of the music critic, at least in terms of newspapers or journals, that's a product of, of a time when going to a concert was a significant thing. Now concerts are so ubiquitous that it's, it's very difficult for a critic, even if he wanted to, to attend everything that's going on. So I'm, I'm much more interested in giving overviews than just reviewing a single concert or a single CD, trying to see a panorama of what's going on. So what's next for you? What are you, what are you working on at the moment? And what would, you, what would you like to do in the future? Well, I'm, I'm currently digging into more Asian composers because I'm, I'm based in Asia at the moment. And there, there are many, many composers that I would want to discuss at some point. I'm, I'm just not sure what, what the appropriate platform is. Uh, what I do with the Living Composers Project is a purely objective thing. There is no criticism intended or implied. It's, it's, it's an objective encyclopedic type of thing. But in my other writing, I'm willing to express opinions. But I, I don't have a regular platform for that. People write to me all the time, uh, you know, who, people who follow my YouTube channel or my podcast, asking for recommendations of things that they should listen to or that they should be paying attention to in the contemporary music world. And the truth is, I'm actually very badly placed to give out recommendations, partly because I'm, I'm so absorbed in my own work that it's very difficult for me to follow the production of all the composers out there. Um, so what I'd really be interested in is just hearing your perspective on, on this, and maybe you could give us uh, some names of composers that you think are particularly worth paying attention to that maybe aren't getting the, uh, the attention that they deserve. Yeah, it's, it's daunting for me too, because... The, the number of composers 
that I, I like to keep up with is already huge. And it seems to be growing exponentially as, as you discover more composers every year. But to, to think of, of major countries and major composers that are totally unknown, we will start close to home. I, I think in, in the US, probably the most significant composer in the under 50 age range would be Jeffrey Holmes. Okay. He's a, he's a California composer, born and raised. His work is very often microtonal, and he's been heavily influenced by Zanakis, although the music doesn't sound like Zanakis. It also doesn't sound like Harry Parch or that kind of microtonality. It's, it's a very visceral music, which is good. In Canada, since... I'm an honorary Canadian, and since you're a Canadian, if people don't know R. Murray Schaefer, he's obviously the most important Canadian composer. He's a hugely significant figure in many different fields, and he has, I think, 11 string quartets. He has all these operas that are not exactly operas they are outdoor pieces that have to be staged in very particular setups he has orchestra music he has concertos he's written poetry he's he edited a, a volume about Ezra Pound's music he's he's a, a real renaissance figure Murray Schaefer but also in Canada there's Chris Harmon he's a younger composer teaches at McGill his sound world is unique his Student Matthew Ricketts is very good. Mm, thinking about Germany, I think most people would already know people like Enno Poppa or Rebecca Saunders. But there are others that are worth mentioning. There's Volker Hein, for instance, who's the same generation as Helmut Lachemann, but his music has never taken off in the same way. Can you, can you sorry? Can you repeat the the last name just before Hespos because it cut out there for a second? Volker. Volker Hein. It's spelled H E Y N, mm -hmm. and he has a a fascinating background. He's mostly self taught, and he worked as a machinist for a time. And his his music is very much inspired by metallic sounds. And does Dieter Mach, M A C K who is one of the world's great gamelan experts and his music does not sound like Neue Musik. It sounds like Dieter Mach. <laughs> or there's Johannes Mochmann, who is quite young. I think he's under 40 still. He was a student of Rehm. And Wolfgang Rehm has produced many different kinds of students. And I've heard several pieces by Mochmann that I thought were unusual. And that's a good thing. But I could also point out, um, let's think, in the, in the UK, maybe people don't know about James Clark, which has an E on the end, or James Dillon. James Dillon is always unpredictable. Or Kenneth Hesketh, who was a disciple of Dutier. Or somebody who just celebrated her 80th birthday, which is Margaret Lucy Wilkins totally unknown figure but her music is often inspired by medieval and renaissance music and it's quite striking in terms of sonority 
And you could never go wrong with Romanians. There, there are so many good Romanians. Ștefan Niculescu is dead, but there are other good ones like Octavian Lemescu or Doina Rotaru, many good Romanians. And or, Diana, Di, or Diana Rotaru, who is her daughter. Indeed, indeed. And uh, I'm based in the Asia Pacific area at the moment, so most people probably know who Lisa Lim is. And she's uh, an Australian who lived in the UK for a long time, but has since moved back. There's uh, Michael Smetanen, who's uh, an Australian composer, whose music was quite striking in the 90s. I don't know if it still is. He was a student of Louis Andreessen. And uh, Joe Kondo. I absolutely adore Joe Kondo, Japanese composer. And in the Philippines, there's Jose Maceda. He is very inspirational to me. His music is not for standard Western formations. It's not for any kind of standard formations. It's the idea of community music making. And that lives on in his student, Jonas Bias, who writes music his own way and often for his own instruments and often with audience participation also. And there are a few Chinese composers that I could mention, like Yao Chen, he studied in the US, or Jia Guoping, who studied with La Heman, or Qin um, Wenchun, He's had some significant performances in Europe recently, and he was a student of Nikolaus Ahuber. I could also mention in Hong Kong, there are several composers, uh, especially Kai Yong Chan, who studied in the US. And I was at a premiere of his tonight. Well, what would be wonderful, actually, if, if you could write these down and, <clears throat> I mean, or, or at least some variant of that list, and I, I'll put it in the description of the podcast, and that way uh, people will be saved from having to hit the pause button and, re and remember all oh, the names. Yes. Oh, <laughs> um, yes, I know, because if you give me any more time, I will just keep rambling and rambling and rambling. It's, it's much easier to put it on a list, also because so many of the names are strange, and if you just say the names, you, you will be frustrated trying to spell the damn thing. So <laughs> well, this is, put it in a list. But this is great, and this is the perfect answer to all the people who write asking for recommendations, because I, I find that your recommendations are, are always uh, surprising and interesting and, and stimulating. So, uh, so we'll, we'll have to put that up for sure. Um, and, and just as a matter of purely personal chauvinism, what about the music of France? Ah... Uh, well, there are, there are certain obvious names which you and I would both know. Maybe you could tell me. I, I always thought that the great hope of French music was Christophe Bertrand, and that was not to be. And I don't know if there's somebody younger who has filled the place that he could have occupied, nor am I sure that the generation older than him has anybody that hasn't mellowed. Uh, I think if you, if you listen to early Dupin, for instance, the, the, there are some wonderful things. Or if you listen to an older generation, Claude Balif maybe, or Bucharestliev, or Gilbert Ami, those, those sorts of people, there are some wonderful things. But who a 
aged 40, 50, 60 in France, Pesson. Pesson writes wonderful music. Uh, Dufour has continued to uh, evolve as a composer and to produce interesting and surprising new works, certainly. The, His the music thing- is, is, is not so easy to access. You, you know that if you listen to a piece by Hugues Dufour, you need to give yourself 30 or 35 or 40 minutes. He, he likes very large orchestral canvases. There yes. are often a lot of great things in there, but you need to be in the right mood for it, that's for sure. It's true, and it, it, those pieces also benefit greatly from live performances as opposed to CDs. And actually, that, that comes back to a conversation I had with a composer just the other day, where we were talking about the Elliott Carter Third String Quartet, and he pointed out that uh, one of the reasons why a lot of people don't like that piece and why it's it's had of actually a, a, not, uh, not an optimal reception, you might say, is simply due to the fact that it doesn't work on CD. Like not everything is made to be recorded and listened to on headphones or in a in a on a on a, on a hi-fi, and uh, that's an example where the the piece actually only really works if you hear it the way it's intended to be played, which is with these with uh, with two string instruments on opposite end of ends of the stage, spatially separated from each other, so that you can sort of very clearly hear the spatial separation and the and the sense of transparency, uh, and it 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 works if it's presented that way, but if you hear it as it's usually presented on a CD, which is how the vast majority of people would encounter that piece, it, it completely distorts the effect. So, Yes, and it's, it's not any different than Gabrielli. If you really want to hear Gabrielli, I, I suppose you need to go to San Marco and, and listen to it that way. Yes, absolutely. But uh, as regards French music in general, I would absolutely agree that I think people should listen to uh, Christophe Bertrand, who is a composer from Strasbourg. That's the city that I live in. And he was, uh, you're not the only person I've heard um, uh, say that he was, for, for many people, the, the, the great hope of uh, the next generation of French composers. And I sadly have to say was because he, he, uh, he died quite young. But nevertheless, he left behind uh, a body of work that uh, is well worth investigating. I mean, it has all of the qualities and the defects of very young composers. Uh, but the the best of the works are incredibly striking. There's a piece called uh, Satka, for example, which I think is a, a remarkable work. There's a double concerto also, which I actually heard performed at its premiere in Strasbourg. And I, I did briefly meet Christophe Bertrand on that occasion. Um, that's the piece called Vertigo, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's the piece. And he is a remarkable composer doing things that I think are really unique. I mean, he had a, an approach to to sound and to, uh, to speed and to this, this virtuosity of figuration and patterns that is a completely eccentric position to take with regards to contemporary music. It's not something that you see very much of. Like you have to imagine, I can't even imagine how to describe the music exactly, but it's got this, this sort of obsessive, febrile, incredibly rapid, dense quality to it that can be tremendously exciting to listen to. Uh, you mentioned, um, we mentioned Hugues Dufour. Betsy Jolas is a figure that should be, uh, well, she is actually widely known. This is not an unknown composer by any stretch of the imagination. But if there's anybody out there listening to this who hasn't encountered the work of Betsy Jolas, uh, a, a, a absolutely marvelous composer, that would be someone to listen to. Um, and she, would, was in, she was in Boston this past week at age 93 for a, a big first performance, I understand. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. She she just got back. Uh, and then there's uh, Alain Gossin, who is, I think, a, quite a remarkable and very individual French composer, who I, whom I like very much. He was actually a teacher of mine, in full disclosure. Um, so yes, he, he's, he's an amazing composer, somebody who 
writes very little music, but all of it is of exceptional quality. I think he has maybe 15 or 20 pieces in his catalog, but you cannot find a dud in there. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there is Frédéric Durieux, who is also a teacher of mine, who has some very beautiful, very, very beautiful pieces. Um, and in the younger generation, there are people like David Udry, H-U-D-R-Y, who I think is uh, quite an interesting composer. There's Philippe de Roux, who is now an honorary Canadian. As you say, he's been living in Montreal for, for, for quite, a, quite a long time. Uh, there's Jean-Luc Hervé also, uh, who has some very, very striking work. I could rattle off lots and lots of names, of course, but um, but as as we're just talking about this, it, it just strikes me there are, there are so many interesting artists out there producing work, and um, perhaps the the way to discover them is just it's like pulling a thread. It's like you discover one composer and they'll be attached to another, connected to another. Then you might investigate uh, their 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 teacher's work and so on, and then that leads to something else, and then it spreads out rhizomatically in all of these different directions. And so the thing about contemporary music is it doesn't take much to sort of get into it because you everything is connected to everything else in this in this very interesting way. So, and and that's exactly how I got started because I, I realized that everybody was a student of somebody who was a student of somebody, or maybe you were both a classmate of this this teacher at this period of time and. That sort of thing is is very interesting. I, I don't know if he's French or Swiss, but maybe we could mention Please Prose. Oh, absolutely, he's French. Yes, yes. Well, and there's also Mikia Jarel, who is who is Swiss, who uh, wrote an absolutely magnificent viola concerto that I heard a couple of years ago, which should be yeah, a, 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 a Zimmerman. Yes, a exactly. Piece. It's a great, great piece. Yeah. So there, there's there's lots of things. So we better stop there because we could just keep going on forever <laughs> but uh, those are those are some good places to start and and of course unfortunately uh, that also means we've left out a lot of uh, names that are equally worthy of inclusion but but we do have to but, stop but, somewhere. but, but don't, don't don't worry if anybody's listening and, and wants a long list uh, I, I'm sure Sam will post it if I send it to him <laughs> I absolutely will uh, with with great pleasure okay well thank, thank you, you so Sam. much thank you Dan it was, a, it was a pleasure talking thank you bye-bye